Just a reminder, a couple of things, uh, most important of which is the uh, picnic on Saturday the 13th. Of course, if there's inclement weather, we'll send out an alert. But one of the reasons there are so many festivals and uh, things like that in October is because October is the month on the calendar that has the least amount of precipitation and the best weather. So everything gets crowded into October. And the last couple of days have been have been very, very nice. So we have the picnic on October the 13th. We have, um, uh, in case you had an opportunity to uh, sign up for it, there will be the uh, dispensational hermeneutic study group that was started by Mike Stallard, who is the president of the Bible Baptist uh, Seminary in uh, Pennsylvania. And that meets there every other year. I went up there with that last year with, Charlie Clough and Tommy Ice and a number of other people. It's a real solid uh, dispensational uh, group of scholars. And then this year, uh, every other year, they're meeting in at colleges or seminaries that are part of their the study group. So they'll they meet in these different locations. So this year they're in Houston. Next year they'll be back up in Pennsylvania. Who knows where they'll be after that? Maybe we'll have been raptured and we'll all be with the Lord. Who knows? Uh, just a, <clears throat> everybody asks about my dad, which I appreciate. Today is his 89th birthday, and I went down to the hospital this morning. I'm trying to go down to the VA every day. Some days, like the next two or three days, I'm just not going to be able to get down there because of the conference. But um, I was down there this morning, and when I was down there, all of the uh, uh, bunch of nurses on the floor and aides came in singing happy birthday, and they had a cake, and they brought it in, and and he hadn't slept well or something last night. He's just lying there. And you know how it is when, you, if you've ever been around someone who is the kind of condition he's in, he was just lying there with his uh, mouth open and uh, eyes closed. And I tried to get his attention to wake up and to, to listen as they were singing. I mean, he had 10, 11 people in a small hospital room singing happy birthday. It's not quiet. And uh, But then I noticed that his lips were moving, and as I watched him, he was singing, Happy Birthday to Me, Happy Birthday to Me. <laughs> so I knew he wasn't all gone. <laughs> so anyway, I appreciate your prayers. We have to still, he's been in, in the VA now for three weeks, and we have to find a place, a uh, nursing home uh, for him, and we've looked at about a half a dozen, none of which are acceptable, so... Now they're beginning to say, you need to get them out of here. Well, you need to have some better nursing homes you associate with. So we need to be in prayer for that. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we have a few moments of silent prayer. It's our custom to always do this as a means of just reminding us and teaching the principle that Scripture teaches that when we sin, that we break fellowship with God. Psalm 66:18 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear now, there's two reasons that God doesn't really effectively, efficiently hear people's prayers. One is because they're not a believer, and the other is even if they are a believer, if they're not in fellowship. I mean, that's what Paul, that's what David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I'm out of fellowship, if I'm walking according to the sin nature, then the Lord will not hear. And a lot of people have taken exception to that over the years, but that's because they think that somehow it is their righteousness, their works, their sincerity that somehow impresses God enough to where he is, he is bound to listen to them. But that's not how Scripture represents it. Scripture says that God has fellowship with us only on the basis of cleansed sin. In the Old Testament, the term that's used frequently is atonement is made. As, and that was done temporarily through the sacrifices in the Old Testament depicting the cleansing from sin. In the New Testament, because Christ has paid the penalty for sin, 
when we understand that that penalty is paid, we believe in Christ, we're saved. But then when we sin, we don't lose our salvation, but we break fellowship with God. So to recover that, we are uh, to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge to him in silent prayer that we've sinned and he cleanses us from all sin and forgives us from all unrighteousness. So we're restored to fellowship so we can go forward walking by the Spirit who is the one who helps us to understand and implement his word. And that's a part of what we're studying this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as we begin, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to be here, grateful for the heritage that we have in this nation, a heritage that is based upon your word, a heritage that understood that freedom was not simply a political or an economic reality, but was ultimately based in a spiritual reality. And it was those founders who came to this country, the Puritans and many others who came in the 17th century who established the colonies here, and they were men and women whose thinking was grounded upon your word, and they understood the uh, principles of establishment in your word, principles of individual responsibility and volition, principles related to marriage, the family, uh, principles related to human government and, and the nation. And it was on the basis of those divine institutions that they built a free country. They built a country where, wherein people could uh, exploit their abilities and their talents, work hard, and move forward. And above all, they, they built communities that were centered around churches and centered around the teaching of your word, recognizing that that was the only real basis for stability, the only real basis for prosperity, the only real basis for, for any level of, uh, of success in life. And Father, we recognize that as well, and we continue to pray for our nation, uh, both in the distress of our economy, which may very well be a, an act that you have brought about called of discipline to bring us to focus upon you and an opportunity for us to realize that the plans, the programs, the policies that have been implemented, not only by this administration, but by many that have preceded it, have brought us to a horrible position, a position of, of um, fragmentation and collapse, and that needs to be reversed. And, Father, so we continue to pray for our nation, that people would wake up, would see the light, understand the truth, and reverse course. We pray for us as believers that we might be a light to the world and that we might uh, be an effective testimony to those here and those uh, around us as well as to the angels by our faithful devotion to your word and its application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Anyone who's even a casual observer of what's been going on in churches and Christianity over the last 30 years has recognized that a, a, a revolution has taken place, a revolution that is n- not a biblical revolution, but a revolution that has been heavily influenced by the culture, by the whole concept of American individualism and American success. And how do we measure success in America? We measure success in America by how many customers you have and how much money you make. And so success in in the church has been redefined over the last 30 to 40 years to how large you are and how big your ministry is and whether or not you have a, a television ministry and all of these other things that are not related at all to the real issues of spiritual health that are uh, that are revealed in Scripture. We have so the larger the churches become, the broader their doctrinal beliefs, the less they teach of the word and the more they let just anything slide by. And they too often fail to uh, proclaim the truth of the gospel because it might offend somebody. Too often they fail to teach the uh, basic uh, skills needed for spiritual growth not to mention just teaching word by word, verse by verse, book by book, the 
whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, teaching people about the uh, wonderful character of God, his faithfulness to us, his love for us, his gracious provision of everything for us, and how to walk by the Holy Spirit. They, we aren't taught well how, how even to have a relationship with God on the basis of the cross. And we come to this particular passage where we are in Acts, in Acts chapter 9, we're taking up where we left off last time, just after the salvation of Saul of Tarsus, who will become known in history primarily as the Apostle Paul. And what we see in this next section in this chapter, we'll start in verse 19, 18, 19, uh, and we'll probably, I hope, get down to verse 31, although there's a lot that's embedded in there. Uh, we'll see principles related to uh, Paul's spiritual foundation and his spiritual growth, as well as what uh, develops as a spiritual healthy church in the in this early early stage, approximately four to six years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we get into it completely, I want to address your attention to where we're going. Sometimes it helps if you see where you're headed before you get there so you can kind of fit things together because the writers of Scripture are not just stringing together uh, nice little sayings. You have that in a couple of places like the book of Proverbs, but for the most part they're telling a story. They're telling a historically grounded story, something that actually happened with real flesh and blood people that was written during the time of, of the lives of the people involved so that uh, if they were not telling the truth, they could be called on the carpet for it. And this is these were written. Now, this is not what you'll hear if you watch the Discovery Channel, the History Channel. And I was watching something on the Military History Channel yesterday afternoon, and it was about three archaeologists and their guesstimates about Jesus. And you, after you've been around a while, you begin to hear code words, and you need to know what code words are. And when you hear that they're that they're investigating the historical Jesus then you know right away it has nothing to do with the Bible. They're not investigating the biblical Jesus. They're investigating the historical Jesus. And that phrase means they're, 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 they're trying to learn all they can about Jesus, and they've rejected what the Bible says. And they're trying to figure out who Jesus was and what he did apart from anything that's said in the Bible because they don't believe that's true. They, their basic assumption, as we'll see, is that they believe that that was written by uh, some 150 to 300 years after Jesus died by people who weren't eyewitnesses, and they're just sort of making it up as they go along with and writing down certain traditions that, that came down uh, through oral tradition. Of course, this flies in the face of what we now know uh, from archaeology and other things is established, but they, they still have this set presupposition that God really doesn't oversee his the transmission or the revelation and transmission of his word and so their 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 starting point and their whole focal point is it can't be what the bible claims it to be which is the revealed word of god it can't be what those conservatives say because they're the nastiest people around so we we they're, and they're dumb you know they're just a bunch of snake handlers they, they just belong up in the hills of appalachia and the ozarks and um and they can't even string three sentences together. And then they always find somebody like that. And unfortunately, there are people like that, but there are liberals like that too. So we just don't, we're much more gracious and we put, don't put them up in front of everybody. And so what we see here in this, in this passage is a historical uh, telling of what happens with Saul of Tarsus following his uh, conversion when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and as I pointed out last time, the modern liberal take on this uh, is that, that, that Saul is just overcome with guilt because of his persecution, torture of so many Christians, and he has this sort of psychological event that takes place, and he just sort of passes out because of guilt, and he has this uh, emotional conversion. But 
where do you get any of that? I mean, the only evidence we have of anything related to the conversion of the Apostle Paul is in the book of Acts and a few other hints from other other passages of Scripture. But if you if you throw that out, then you're just making it up as you go along. Yesterday, when I mentioned this program, these three archaeologists they had, I'd never heard of, of any of them. But the things, immediately you pick up on the fact they're talking about Jesus politically, his social revolution. From the get-go, they're interpreting Jesus in, in, in the sense of a political revolutionary and a, and a social economic revolutionary. That means a Marxist, for those of you who are not in tune with how things really go. And, and, and from there, it just goes downhill. I mean, that's the high point of the whole thing. I had to turn it off after a couple of minutes because I didn't want to have to go suddenly get started on blood pressure medication or anything. I'm the worst person I understand to watch documentaries or anything, movies, dramas, anything that touches on the Bible because I'm too critical. Actually, I know too much, and uh, I don't want the garbage to get into my soul. So what happens is Saul is on the way to Damascus, He's got his entourage with him. They are. They have a, a letter of uh, commission from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to seek out anyone who believes Jesus is the Messiah in the synagogues that are there. Now, remember, at this time, all of the Christians, and they're not called Christians yet, they're called followers of the way, all of those who are followers of the way all of those who are Christians are Jews. So Christianity for really the first 30 or 40 years, even though uh, that covers the initial expansion into uh, the Gentile community, was primarily Jewish and viewed as a Jewish sect. And it isn't until you get to the mid-60s when you have the Jewish revolt against Rome and, of course, the Christians in Jerusalem, remembered that Jesus said when you see some of these uh, in, in the Luke version, uh, Luke is the only one who records this part of the Sermon on the, uh, I mean, of the uh, Olivet Discourse, that when they saw those things coming to fulfillment, uh, Jesus said, head to the hills, go to the mountains, get out of town. And they did. And the rest of the Jews thought they were traitors. And then uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. But the Christians, no Christians died in the sack of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem because they had heeded the warning from uh, from Jesus. And so, but during this early stage, it's still a Jewish-based uh, sect. It's still a subset within the synagogue. So Saul has been commissioned to arrest and bring back in chains any Christians that he finds uh, in Damascus. And as he approaches Damascus, suddenly Jesus appears to him in a bright light, and it's objective. The, those with him don't see Jesus, and they don't hear what he says, but they see a bright light. They vaguely see a figure there. They just don't have a focus on who it is. And they hear him speak. They hear hear the noise. You know, If you remember or if you've seen any of the old... Uh, any of the Peanuts animation TV specials, you never hear the adults talk. When the adults come along, you hear, rah, 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 rah. you never hear them say anything. Well, that's kind of like what they heard. They just heard noise, but they knew something appeared, someone was there, and that someone said something to Saul of Tarsus. The specifics, they didn't know. So, But the specific was that Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? At which point Saul falls down. He realizes he is before the presence of deity, that Jesus of Nazareth is who he claimed to be. He believes on him as the promised and prophesied Messiah of Israel. And this is when he is justified, regenerated, and uh, conversion. Now the bright light blinded him. He goes on. His companions take him into Damascus. He's, he's blind there. We're told that he had a vision that the Lord told him to expect someone named Ananias to come to him and would restore his sight after three days. And then we're told in verses uh, 12 and following, or excuse me, 11 and following, that the Lord appeared to Ananias and told him to go find Saul. 
and that he was praying and that he was blind and that Ananias was to heal him. And Ananias, being a human being with good sense, said, why should I go to him? He's, he's the one who's killing Christians. And the Lord said that he is now a chosen vessel of mine and will bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Verse 15, I think that's important. I pointed it out last time, but in case you missed it, too often what we find, among, especially among dispensationalists, is an artificial distinction and emphasis on Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, he, that's his primary mission. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, but not to the exclusion of the Jews. He always, Romans 1, 12, he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He always took the gospel first to the Jews in Jewish synagogue, and that wasn't wrong. Notice Jesus said he is commissioned to take my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So even though he's not, doesn't have as his primary objective taking the gospel to uh, the Jews, it's not wrong for him to do that. I've heard people actually suggest that. And that's just erroneous. They haven't read the text. And uh, he he is not wrong in any of those areas. So Ananias goes and heals him, and then we read, and during this three-day period, Saul has not eaten. He has been fasting. Now, nowhere in Scripture is there a command to fast. That may surprise you. There are examples of many people who fast. There are those who fast in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with fasting, but the reason people fasted in Scripture was not because there was anything efficacious in fasting. What was, what was significant was that something was so significant, so pressing, so important, so overwhelming that the person was so focused and concentrating on prayer that they didn't take, weren't, they were not going to get away from prayer to take time to take care of their own personal needs in terms of eating or something like that. Uh, it's not this kind of silliness that you get in some churches today that, well, we're going to have a fast, but we understand some of you may be diabetic or some of you may have other things, so you can have a water fast or a juice fast or, you know, all this other nonsense. Uh, as if there was something in the giving up of water or food that was that would somehow twist God's arm to answer your prayer and make it more more effective. Uh, fasting was the result of someone being so focused in prayer or uh, dealing with an issue that they were not going to take the time to deal with, with food. Now, remember, this is a time when they couldn't just hop in the car and run down to McDonald's and go through the drive-thru and pick up a burger and come home and eat it, and the whole thing takes 15 minutes. And they, when they would eat, they would have to go out and kill the cow, skin the cow, gut the cow, butcher the cow, bring the meat in and build a fire, go get the firewood, build a fire. It took a lot of time to prepare a meal. And so that was part of, of that whole process. It wasn't just as simple as, um, as we have today. So those kinds of things usually are never discussed when people talk about fasting, but I find that they're somewhat important and relevant to the discussion. So Saul is fasting because he's just been overwhelmed. The Lord Jesus Christ took out a spiritual two-by-four and whacked him upside the head with it and got his attention. And and he is he is physically stressed. Not in a bad way, but just overwhelmed. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to all of a sudden realize that everything you've devoted yourself to, given yourself to, in a matter of three seconds gets wiped out and you have to do an abs- a complete 180 degree shift. And in the middle of that, now you're suddenly blind. This, this is tough on anybody. So there, there's, he's going through a lot of things. Plus, he's got to think all this thing, all this through. And he's thinking it through, and that's why he is not eating. And this text specifically says that he is not uh, drinking at all. In verse verse uh, 9, we read, And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, that's important to pay attention to that. I remember back in the days when I used to work as a wilderness camp director, and we used to teach survival techniques, there was a little rule we would use called the rule of threes, that you can live three minutes without air, 
Uh, in harsh weather, you can you have about three hours until you can get shelter. If it's cold or you're wet, then and hypothermia can set in. Then you've got about three hours to get shelter where you can uh, uh, get get out out of the weather, and you can go approximately three days without water. Some people can go maybe six days without water. That's the suggestion. But a lot of uh, factors affect that. Some people can't last 30 minutes without water. If you get locked in a car in Houston, Texas in mid-August, then you're not going to last much longer than 30 minutes because you're going to dehydrate very rapidly and the temperatures are going to get in excess of 150 degrees and you're just going to you know, bake off right there on the front seat of the car. So there are a lot of different factors, but under, under normal conditions, under normal conditions, a, a healthy adult can go, usually go about three days without water. But things are, a lot of factors affect that. Humidity, the amount of activity that they're engaged in, the outside temperature, the person's weight, person's age, their percentage of body fat health, all of those things uh, play a role in um, in how long they can go with without water. So going three days without water is not impossible, but you don't want to go longer than that without water. But you can go six weeks or so without food. Uh, that's why Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. You get to that 41st, 42nd day, you need to start eating again. You don't want to go much longer uh, than that. So if you, if you do, you're dehydrated, then you'll experience dizziness, fatigue, disorientation, headaches. Paul may have been approaching this after three days. Uh, it can get worse. You have extreme thirst, irritability. That may be the excuse some people have. Uh, confusion. And you can even begin to have, uh, delirium and unconsciousness. Notice this is three days after the event. On the road to Damascus, the road to Damascus was not a uh, part of his. Uh, he was not dehydrated. He did not have, uh, you know, he was not um, seeing things <clears throat> or hallucinating on the road to Damascus. But he would be very tired. It, it's physically draining to go without food or water for three days. So this is a point where he would need to be um, to be hydrated. Now you can see from the map. Here's Damascus, that it is on the edge of the Arabian Desert. We don't know what time of year it was, but having been throughout the uh, uh, Israel and the Middle East and within about 40 miles of Damascus, it's uh, it's very dry climate. It's uh, it's desert to high desert, and so you can uh, you can dehydrate pretty uh, pretty quickly. Let me just skip a couple slides here. This is the Arabian Desert where Paul will go. And let's get back here to Acts 9.19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now this sets up what's going to happen over the next few days. Let's look at the verse a little bit. So when he had received food, and uh, the word here is is a participle, and it would be a temporal participle, but the participle is in the <clears throat> is in the aorist tense, which indicates it precedes the action of the main verb. The main verb is talking about him his being strengthened. It's this uh, verb, an iskuo. Iskuo is the word for being strengthened, being strong, being capable, being able. Uh, the en pre- uh, prepositional prefix that's attached to it. Uh, means to be strengthened within, and it also is a word that, although the primary usage is physical, it is also used a number of places for uh, spiritual recovery, but it's clear from the context here that you're talking about a man who is physically uh, exhausted, physically drained, physically down from not eating or drinking, and so the context of the meaning of this word is physical. Now, the reason I point that out is because Uh, If you look down, go from verse 9 where you hear about the three days without sight and and neither ate nor drank to verse 19, when he he had received food, that's the King James, New King James, it should be after he received food, 
because it's you don't get strength when you're eating. It comes just a little after you're eating. So you, that aorist tense is, is really important. It indicates action that precedes the action of the verb, and yet that uh, wasn't uh, accurately translated uh, at, that, at that particular point. Now, if you look down at verse 22, verse 22 says, but Saul increased all the more in strength. Now, in English, you have the same word in both places, strength, but they're two different words in Greek. And the word in verse 19 is talking about his physical recovery. The verse in verse 22 is emphasizing, the word in verse 22, as we'll see, is emphasizing his spiritual strengthening, his spiritual growth that is, that is developing, uh, very, very rapidly. And so the word in eskuo, it means to recover from a loss of strength, to regain or recover one's strength. It's a, it's an, uh, aorist active voice, and air, active voice means that the subject, which is Paul, performs the action. Now, in English, often we'll translate it, he receives strength. Well, that's a passive translation. That's not accurate. He was, the, the food is what strengthened him, uh, and he regained his, his uh, vigor and his uh, physical uh, energy. And so the best way to translate this into sort of an expanded translation would read, after, and after receiving food, he recovered his physical strength. I would add that to make sure that we understand the context here. It's not talking, focusing on him spiritually, but physically. He recovered his physical strength. Then afterward, he spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. So this would be with the Christians, and he's spending time probably ask, answering questions. They want to make sure that he's really had a conversion, that he's not just trying to infiltrate their ranks and then uh, then arrest them and take them to prison. And he's also asking them questions as he's trying to put together uh, what he has what he has learned. But I think there's also a principle here and that is that though our ministry, and every believer in the body of Christ is given a ministry, we're all given a, a spiritual gift at the instant of salvation, but though the ministry is spiritual, it runs on food and water. We can't be effective if we're not taking care of ourselves physically, and that's important. When you're young, you can get away with a lot of things that uh, as you grow older and more mature, you can't get away with. And you have to pay attention to how you uh, economically utilize your energy. There are things that you can take the time to be distracted by when you're 25 that you don't have the energy to be distracted by when you're 55. You need to make sure that uh, as you get older that you take care of yourself so that you can accomplish the mission that God has put before you. So it's very important here that you have the energy the physical energy necessary to accomplish the mission. We're not mystics. The power of the Holy Spirit isn't going to suddenly zap you with extra energy so that you can go do what God wants you to do. And if we don't take care of ourselves physically when we're younger, and I know some people take this too far. I'm not going to give you a talk on health food or vitamins or exercise or any of those things. I know of pastors who've gone way off the rails on stuff like that, and that's going too far. We all understand basic principles that we need to take care of ourselves physically so that we're able to accomplish what God has for us spiritually in terms of our, our ministry. And one of the things that I have seen over the years and that I have taken to heart is I have watched and observed and I'm very grateful that God has given me basically good health. Uh, I'm going to a little reunion from a bunch of guys I was in ROTC with this weekend. And um, two of our guys, one died 10 years ago from stomach cancer, one died three years ago from stomach cancer. Uh, we've got a couple of guys who in their 50s had strokes. And that's not, not unusual. 
And, uh, and there are a lot of people who have, when they get in their 50s, they've got knee problems and hip problems. And, and this may or may not have anything to do with, with volition or health or any other decisions made over time. But as you get older, and we all know this, it's harder and harder to do the exercise and to work out and to keep the weight off. But one thing I observed, just to encourage you a little bit, is the folks that I know, and I've known a lot of you for a lot of years, some of you just way too many years, but um, um, I watch people I dearly love who are now in their 70s, and I see some people, some people in this congregation, who have faithfully taken care of themselves physically and exercised, and, and they are a very young, 77 or 78. And I've seen others who haven't taken care of themselves at all, and, and they have all kinds of problems. And it's a distraction from being engaged in ministry. And they've let their health go. And we have to pay attention to that. And I think that's a a principle that we see here is that Paul has to be strengthened physically before he can engage in in ministry. So let's just, uh, we need to pay attention to principles like that. Now, what happens as a result of his being strengthened? Then he begins to spend some time with the disciples engaged in conversation learning uh, how their backgrounds, learning what's going on, the dynamics. He's going to spend almost three years outside of some time. We don't know how much time, sometime out in Arabia. But he's going to spend uh, a good bit of the next three years in Damascus. And so he's laying a foundation here. And later on, we're going to see that when he leaves Damascus, it's because his life is threatened the uh, Jews who have turned hostile to him in the synagogues, and they're out to kill him. And his disciples, it's unusual. Uh, rarely does the scripture talk about anybody having disciples other than Jesus. But as we get down there, it says there's a textual problem there. It's either the disciples, which is probably the best reading, or his disciples. But um, King James, uh, New King James have, uh, uh, have uh, I think they have... Uh, let me see, that's at about verse uh, 29 or 30. And they, uh, no, it's before then, it's when they, it's the disciples, verse 25. Uh, if you've got a New American Standard and NIV, it says his disciples. Uh, but uh, I think the New King James, K, uh, KJV, following the uh, majority text is probably better there. But they, they let him out. But how did he get to know them? He built that, those relationships with them over, over this three-year period of time. So he's building that relationship. Now that sets us up for what happens next. Verse 20, we're told immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. Immediately he preached the Christ. Now Christos in Greek is just the Greek translation. It's the word from the verb creo meaning to anoint. So Christos is the noun form, meaning the anointed one, and is the Greek counterpart to the Old Testament word Mashiach, meaning Messiah, or the anointed one. So he's it's saying here he preached, he proclaimed the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And this is connecting to Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah and the, the Son of God. And he does this immediately. And that word indicates a very short amount of time. As you trace it through in a number of passages in the Scripture, it indicates that something happens and then just immediately following, just like it does in English, something else happens. In Galatians 1.16, talking about this same period of time, he uses that same Greek word, eutheos, he says, uh, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. In fact, something that happens directly after uh, another event. And so this word means that, that right away he de- doesn't take a lot of time. The, the episode that, that Paul refers to in Galatians uh, 1.17 and following of going to Arabia during this time doesn't occur right away. Immediately uh, after his conversion, he begins to uh, preach, and this is the Greek verb keruso, to preach or proclaim uh, the, the Messiah 
in the synagogues. Now, this word preached is interesting. It's from the verb keruso, which is formed from the noun kerux. A kerux was a, a herald. Now, in uh, classical Greek period, this was sort of like the cupbearer, like Nehemiah was in Nehemiah. It was an official court position, and it was usually held by a slave. And it was didn't really have the idea of someone who went out uh, in the highways and byways making announcements. That came along later. Uh, that was one function of a kerux later on. It also became a, a technical word for a... Uh, certain function within the uh, mystery religions, the Eleusinian mystery. So by the time the first, uh, by the first century, in the, uh, when the New Testament was written, the word kerux, the noun, had a lot of different meanings. But the verb basically meant to announce or proclaim something. And most of the time in the New Testament, now this is really important, most of the time in the New Testament, the, this word keruso, which is usually translated preached, this word keruso is related to the content of the gospel. It's not related to Christian life, post-salvation teaching. It's related primarily to the announcement of the gospel. Now, there may be one or two exceptions to that, but uh, uh, <clears throat> for the most part, it relates to the gospel message. And so today we live in a world where preaching and teaching have been redefined in popular church culture so that preaching takes on a certain uh, oratorical or rhetorical form. And you go to certain churches, and they'll have certain styles of preaching, and some are a little more dramatic than others, some are a little less dramatic. Sometimes you go to some of the new big churches that have built themselves on sociological principles rather than on the principles we see in this passage and the, 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 they don't have a pulpit, and the, pa- the pastor's up there, and he's got on a pair of blue jeans and a T-shirt, and he's up there just, just talking to people, and it's very laid back, and uh, so is the doctrine. Uh, so, but that's all related to a contemporary version or idea of what preaching was, but that's not formed on what the, the biblical concept was. Preaching is usually almost always related to the proclamation of the gospel content, the message of salvation. Teaching, didasco, is what is necessary for a new believer who has responded to the gospel to grow. He has to learn. He has to be instructed in the faith. He has to be taught uh, the Word of God and understand the principles in the Word of God. And and that's not just a proclamation. That is an instruction when you go through and explain, analyze the text and explain its meaning and illustrate its, its application. So here what Paul is doing is he's going out and he's talking about uh, the Messiah. Now, the application here is that when we are engaged in evangelism, we need to be able to express the gospel in a way that, that puts it in a historical context, that Jesus didn't just show up and surprise everybody. It was Jesus' presence was predicted and promised from the Old Testament, from the initial uh, somewhat vague uh, prophecy of uh, Genesis 3.16 that the seed of the woman would uh, crush the head of the seed of the serpent. From that initial announcement, tracing the meaning of the seed all the way through the Pentateuch and then later into uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant, and as you go through the, the progress of the Old T- Testament, more and more is said about God's promise of salvation. You have the introduction first of sacrifices in Genesis uh, 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 3 with the shedding of the animals' uh, blood when God skins the animals and dresses them as a picture of uh, salvation, instructing them on sacrifices, going through Genesis 4, and then all of a sudden you get into Exodus and you get into the latter part of Exodus and Leviticus and all of a sudden now you have a a variety of different sacrifices. 
each one designed to teach different things from just one general sort of sacrifice to a many different kinds of sacrifice. You have uh, also the narrowing of the family and the genealogy from just a descendant of Adam and Eve to a descendant of Noah through Shem, and then from Shem through Abram, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through the tribe of Judah in Genesis 50, and then through the uh, lineage of David as you get to Second Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant, and then you get other specifics like Micah 5.2 that talks about the fact that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so there's a narrowing uh, of the focus because more and more details are given so that people, when the Messiah comes, they'll be able to identify him. Uh, his character, his credentials, his geographical birth, and all these things are predicted uh, in the Old Testament. And also that he would be uh, he would be God. There, that is shown from a number of different passages: Isaiah uh, seven fourteen, Isaiah nine six, uh, just Micah five two, which I mentioned earlier. The one would be born in Bethlehem, whose goings forth are from everlasting. So he's born but he's been around for eternity? Wait a minute, to be born indicates you're human and finite, but to be around for eternity indicates that you have to be divine. So right there you have this this implied divine-human combination there. Well, you look at a number of different passages, get those under your belt, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, Isaiah 53 with the uh, uh, suffering servant that we've gone through just recently in this series, and these are passages that you can use to, in witnessing to people and explaining why you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul is proclaiming this in the synagogues because that's the only place that, that he was and that, saying that he is the Son of God. Now, Luke only mentions Jesus as the Son of God in this place clearly and maybe one other place in Acts 13 where he is, uh, Acts chapter 13, where he's talked about uh, a quote from Psalm chapter 2 <clears throat> as the son, but but this is one of Paul's favorite terms that he uses in Romans 1.4. He talks about Jesus being declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. And so there he's alluding again to Psalm 2. In 2 Corinthians 1.19, he says, For the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you. See there, he's using that term again in, in relation to to, um, uh, to the gospel. Preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, or Silas, that was his Latin name, Silvanus, and Timothy. Galatians 2.20, talking about his own salvation, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he connects and identifies the Messiah Christ as the Son of God. And Ephesians 4.13, focal point of the church ministry, the ministry of the spiritual gifts of teaching and equipping, are to the point that we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And this term, Son of God, is doesn't mean that Jesus had a physical generation from a daddy, okay? This doesn't mean that there was a time when the second person of the Trinity, when Jesus didn't exist. That was originally taught in the early church by, by a heretic named Arius. It goes by the name of Arianism historically. It goes by the name of Jehovah's Witnesses today, and they teach that there was a time when Jesus wasn't there. There's just God. Jesus has derivative deity. He is a God, but not the God. And they do not believe in the uh, that Jesus is complete, equal deity with God, uh, God the Father. And it's based on a lot of different errors and misunderstanding. But when we look at this phrase, Son of God, uh, in, in Hebrew, this is an idiom, and it doesn't mean that you're... That a man has a physically generates a son. It is used as an idiomatic expression for identifying someone who has certain characteristics that apply to them. For example, uh, usually these aren't translated this way into English, so they're hard to find, but there are passages that talk about uh, people who are very disruptive 
and bring chaos into society and are criminals, and they're called sons of Belial. In other places, they're just translated as a murderer, but actually the Hebrew says they're sons of murderers. Why? Because they are. it's an adjectival description. A son of a murderer is someone who has the characteristics of a murderer. A son of a fool is a person who has the characteristics of a fool. So the son of God is someone who has the characteristics of what? God. It is an expression of complete deity. So Jesus is the son of God, which means he's a fully God. He's also called the son of man, which means he is fully human. He is both fully God and fully human, united together in one person. And the term that has historically been used in Christianity for that since the Council of Nicaea in 425 is the term the hypostatic union or the union of two hypostases, a Greek word indicating the union of two uh, two uh, natures, divine uh, and human. So this is a term that Paul is emphasizing here that Jesus isn't just a man born in Nazareth, but he is the Messiah who's clearly understood to be uh, to be divine. And there are some very ancient traditions in Judaism that go back to a pre-Christian origin that do show that they believe that, that, that rabbis prior to the first century and the split with Christianity did believe that the Messiah would be God. So he preaches that, uh, preaches Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Not that he was. Why? See, the tense is important there. Because Jesus didn't die. He's not in the ground. He is. He is at the right hand of the Father. He rose from the dead. He is alive. And the response to that is that all who heard him were amazed. All who heard him are absolutely uh, astonished. Uh, and the word could even be translated as confused. It is the Greek word existemi, and it has these different different uh, ideas in it, amazed, astonished, confused, and it describes a state where where things don't make a lot of sense. The people are just dumbfounded. They don't know how to explain this 180-degree shift that has taken place uh, in Saul of Tarsus. And they're just saying, well, isn't he the one who came here to destroy all of those who... Um, have called on on his, on his name in Jerusalem. He's come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. And so they know who he is. They know why he is there, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't make any sense to them. Now, there are four parallels between this event and the first this first sermon, this first message of Paul, and the first message of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, hold your place here. And let's turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. If you have less than three fingers, you're in trouble. Because you've got to keep your place in Acts 9. Hold your place in Luke 4. And we're going to be at Luke chapter 4, verse 16. <clears throat> and then we're going to go back, go from Luke and we're going to go to Isaiah 61. So keep one one finger in Acts 9, one finger in Luke 4, and one in Isaiah 61. This is one of those great little passages. I remember when I first discovered this uh, a couple of years before I went to seminary, I was reading through something, and I thought, wow, that's just so, so obvious, so clear. I think I was reading through Clarence Larkin's book on uh, dispensational truth, and I thought, wow, that's just, that's just incredible. Um, Jesus shows up in Nazareth. This is his first message after his temptation in the wilderness. And in verse 16 we read, So he came to Nazareth. Now Nazareth wasn't very large. This room may be larger than Nazareth. Only It had a population of fewer than 100. It didn't have the best reputation either. And it was just a, a, an extremely small rural village. It was on the edge of some urban sprawl. It's about four or five miles from uh, Zippori, which was a large Roman city that was being built at the time that Jesus was growing up and probably where Joseph worked as a uh, construction uh, engineer and builder. And uh, so Jesus comes back to Nazareth where he had been brought up, so everybody knows him. Now, it's tough going back where everybody knows you. 
That's the grace of a lot of people in this congregation because there are people in this congregation who know me since I was in diapers. So, you know, they're very gracious in putting up with me. Jesus comes back and he goes into the synagogue. And as was the custom in the synagogue, uh, it was his turn to read from the scroll. And he's handed the book of Isaiah. And in the um, Jewish tradition, the uh, Old Testament is divided up into sections, and there are different sections, different portions read every every Sunday from the from the law. A few portions from Isaiah, and so he stood up, he opened the scroll, and he goes to the place where it was written. Now, don't you know this just happened by chance? It was just an accident that he happened to walk into the synagogue on this day, and they're reading from Isaiah 61. There's no coincidence in the plan of God. So he picks up the scroll, and he founds the place where it was written, and he starts to read. Now, I want you to just keep your finger there in Luke 4, and let's go to Isaiah chapter 60, uh, Isaiah chapter 61. And let's read this in context. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now, who do you think is speaking there? This is the servant. And he's saying the spirit of the Lord God, which is clearly a different person, is on him. So there's an implication here of at least two divine personages. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So you've got me, the Lord, and the spirit of the Lord. The Trinity's here. So don't let anybody ever tell you that there's no Trinity in the Old Testament. It's just, it's just not explicitly clear, but it is implicit in many places like this. Because the Lord has anointed me. What's the word, the Hebrew word for anointing? It's mashach, from we get the verb mashach, where we get our noun mashiach for anointed one or Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. They're captives and bound by what? By sin. To proclaim, uh, to proclaim the first part of verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then the next phrase in the second part of, uh, second stanza of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now that's a term for the day of the Lord that comes at the end of days. The day of vengeance of our God. Now, you didn't see that there was a time gap of several thousand years between the first line and the second line, did you? It's telescoped. But Jesus understood that. It goes on to read the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning. That's the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. Now, let's go back to Luke 4. You can take your finger out of Isaiah 61. So he reads from Isaiah 61, 1, and the first line in verse 2, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. He doesn't continue to reading the verse. Why? Because up to that point, it's talking about his mission during the first advent to come and proclaim himself as the Messiah and to demonstrate that through the healing of the sick and the healing of the lame and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, that is, through sin, those who are in bondage, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which relates to the time of redemption. And then he closes the book. He doesn't go into the rest of it because the rest of it isn't going to be fulfilled for several thousand years. There's a time gap there. Usually, in and I didn't think about this earlier, but usually the way this is portrayed in a lot of books is, is, is like going to the mountains. And if you've ever driven from here to Colorado, which some of you do quite frequently, you ever drive from here to Colorado, as you approach the, the Rocky Mountains, it looks like all those mountains are just piled up on top of each other. And it's only as you get closer and closer to the mountains that you get some perspective and you realize that some of those mountains are behind other mountains. And there's, there's maybe 100 miles between the near mountain and the far mountain. But you don't see that until you get close. Before you get there, you think that they're right on top of each other. 
And that's the way a lot of prophecies are. They, they, they telescope things so that you're 500 miles away from the Rockies or let's say 100 miles from the Rockies and everything's just kind of blurry and it looks like all those mountains are just right up against each other. But then when you get close, you realize there are valleys between those, some of those mountains and the other mountains and maybe as much as 50, 75, 100 miles uh, are there between those two mountains. And that's like the gap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. When they were back in the Old Testament, uh, two or three, four hundred, five hundred years before, they, they talked about the coming of the Messiah, but they talked about first Advent things and second Advent things as if they were all at the same time. But it wasn't until you get to the New Testament you realize that there, was, there were prophecies related to the suffering of the Messiah and then prophecies related to the glory of the Messiah and the suffering had to come before the glory. The cross had to come before the crown. And that there were, and we now know, at least 2,000 years between the cross and the crown. Because he doesn't come back to assume the role as the king until the rapture, or till, excuse me, to the second coming at the end of the tribulation. And that's seven years after the rapture. We're not there yet, so we don't know when that's going to be. So Jesus makes, makes this, this kind of announcement. And what's the reaction? He closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're just stunned. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It can't be any more clear than that. And all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And he goes on. Now, let's compare that to what happens with Paul. Both Jesus and Paul began their ministries by going into a synagogue and giving a powerful message related to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Both of them are focused on the same thing, that Jesus is the promised prophesied Messiah. Both audiences react in astonishment and amazement at the message. And, and, they, uh, and then they ask questions. In Nazareth, they ask, this is the third thing, in Nazareth, they asked, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Well, we knew this guy. He just grew up around us. I remember when he was in diapers. How can he be saying this? And, and in Damascus, they say, isn't this the same man who was so opposed to Christians and Christianity? What's going on here? They're just confused. And then both of them experienced a violent, hostile reaction to their message, a violent, hostile reaction. In verse 28 of Luke 4, we read, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And they were going to stone him there, because that's what's the procedure. You throw him off the cliff, and then you throw rocks down on him and, and, and stone him. Because he'd, in their view, they'd committed blasphemy by claiming to be the Messiah. But he just passed through the midst of them and went his way. He just sort of, you know, puts a cloud over their eyes and just walks through, through them and gets away. Paul has a similar kind of reaction that after they <clears throat> hear him, they're going to they're try to kill him. So when you think about witnessing to people and, and they just tell you, no, I just don't want to hear it, just be thankful they don't want to stone you. Just because you do everything right doesn't mean people are going to like it. In fact, when you do everything right according to Scripture, you're following the path of Jesus, and when he did nothing wrong, and they crucified him. So the closer we get to doing everything the way God says to, the more opposition we're going to get in this world system, especially when the world system and the culture around us turns more and more against the Bible and Christianity. Now, what we see after this is verse 22, where we read, and I'll close with this tonight, but Saul increased all the more in strength. He increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who, were dwelt, in, who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. So he uh, makes it very clear. He brings his... Um, brings his uh, uh, arguments to bear. 
They can't refute him. Now, he didn't just come up with some of this. this. Remember, for years, probably when Jesus was alive, Paul was a student of Gamaliel's in, in Jerusalem. And like all seminary students throughout all history, they're probably coming back from hearing Jesus and having debates. Well, wait a minute. How can he claim to be the Messiah? What, is the ult- what, what, is, what, what do our fathers say about the Messiah? And they would be debating these, these issues and debating the meaning of the Hebrew text. And he was set on the fact that there was no way that this Jesus could be the Messiah. And then came the road to Damascus. So he does a 180, and nobody understands the arguments of the other side better than the convert. And he understands every argument they're going to use, and he's the most brilliant rabbinical student of his generation, and he just twists and turns their words and flips them over and they can't best him in an argument. He's going to every passage in the Old Testament and proving that it was fulfilled by Jesus, and all, all they're doing is getting madder and madder and madder. And he's increasing in strength, and the word here that's used is uh, in dunameo, which is a word that's used in many places of being strengthened spiritually. So he's growing and he's maturing as a believer in his spiritual life. So I've expanded that translation by saying, Now Saul continued to be spiritually strengthened even more, and he continued to confound the arguments of the Jews. And this is the first time that Paul uses, I mean, that Luke uses this phrase and, and as, a, as a distinguishing mark, the Jews versus the Christians. First time this is, this is stated that way in, in, in Luke. And it's, and, and it's not a term of anti-Semitism because they're all Jews. So it's, it's a term for those who are following rabbinical Judaism. It's not a term of ethnic uh, prejudice. Paul's a Jew, Luke's a Jew. At this point, everybody who's a Christian is, is, is a Jew. So he continued to confound the arguments of the Jews, that is, the leaders of rabbinical Judaism, by demonstrating through sound biblical arguments, that's the idea of the word, and evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And you have to know the word of God to do that. And, and what happened? Well, verse 23, they plotted to kill him. So just because you, you're an excellent witness and just because you have all the answers doesn't mean they're going to like you. In fact, it may be that they don't like you. We'll pick up there next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see how you worked in building, strengthening the church, especially through the, the remarkable gifts and abilities that you gave to Saul of Tarsus. Father, we pray that we might learn from his example Though we do not have his gifts, his abilities, and his commission, nevertheless, we do have the responsibility to be faithful witnesses, defending, expressing the truth of your word, and may we do it to the best of our ability. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.